Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. I want to start this morning sharing a, uh, a couple of stories with you. And uh, we'll warn you, one of these stories has a tendency to make people feel uh, a little queasy. Uh, so just... Just warning you. Just warning. You. I'll start with the. I'll start with the tame one. We'll ease our way in. Okay. Was driving home with uh, my eight-year-old this week, and we're. I'm driving her home from dance, I think. And so we're talking about her day was. We're talking about dance. We're talking about school. Those kinds of things. And we get to turn on the second. It's this, like we're basically home, right? Basically the last street before we get home, and. And you know how kids always save whatever the important information is until you're almost home? So in this case, it wasn't that big a deal. It was just, hey, Daddy, I I think my yogurt might have exploded all over my lunchbox and maybe my backpack. And for those of you who may not know, in eight-year-old speak, I think maybe is code for this definitely happened. Okay. So... Uh, it did not get all over her backpack, thankfully. It, so we were talking about cleaning it up. She's like, I just didn't know how to clean it up at school, whatever. So we talked through how to clean it up when we got home, go get a washcloth, blah, blah, blah. It's one of those soft, insulated uh, lunchboxes, right? So uh, she, we, we get home, and she does a great job of grabbing it and going and cleaning it up, and, um, and, and she's wiping it down. And I come over after a couple minutes to kind of just check on how she's, she's doing, and, and she's doing great. Uh, it, the inside of it looks clean, uh, and I, I notice that in one little corner, there's a little bit of, of yogurt there. So I said, hey, sweetie, can I just kind of help and finish this off? She's like, absolutely. So I take the washcloth, and, and what I realize is I start to kind of pull open the seam a little bit, and it's gotten, in, I mean, it's gotten into everything in, in her lunchbox, and this is just the point where I'm really glad it was just yogurt, right? Like, there's a lot of things that go in a lunchbox that would make this much worse this was just yogurt. But, but I basically ended up having to turn the, uh, the lunchbox uh, inside out to be able to get under all the seams. I mean, it went poof in, in her lunchbox. Okay, that's the tame one. It was just yogurt. About 20 years ago, a little under 20 years ago, uh, I was early on in my youth ministry career working at a church down in Portland, and I was leading a, a weekend retreat trip uh, to Salem, I believe. So uh, we're leaving on a Friday night. Salem is only an hour away, but for those of you who have driven in Portland before on a Friday afternoon, you know that it might be an hour and it might be four. So when I had last seen the kids the Sunday night before, I had told them, hey, bring money for dinner just in case, because I don't know how traffic's going to be. I don't actually know what the plan is even at that point. I, I don't know uh, if they're going to be feeding us dinner when we get there. If we have to get it on the way, I, I, just, I have no idea. So uh, we start out on, on our trip, and uh, by that point, I have heard that they are, in fact, going to be feeding us down there, which is great news. Save the kids some money, assuming we can get out of traffic. Traffic isn't that bad. We, we get out of Portland pretty easy. I'm like, sweet, we're just going to go down to, to the stop, to the church we're staying at, and, and we'll eat dinner there. And I let the kids know that was the plan. And one of them goes, a middle school boy, goes, well, but I really wanted to stop at whatever the place was. I don't remember. I, was it McDonald's? I really want to stop at McDonald's on the way down. Of course it was McDonald's. He's a middle school boy. So 
uh, I, I said, no, no, we're going to get food when, when we get down there. No, no big deal. And he kind of kept pushing the issue. And apparently, he, he had not learned yet what my kids and, and most youth after that figured out, which is that the harder you push me on something, the less likely it is to happen. So he just kept pushing. And the truth is, it didn't matter how hard he pushed. We weren't going to stop. Like, there's free food there. We're not, we're not going to stop on the way down. We really want to stop McDonald's. Two things to know about this young man before this story gets too much farther. Uh, one, uh, he had a little bit of a temper, um, which, I mean, he was tiny, so he couldn't really hurt anybody with his temper, but he had a little bit of temper, like, frankly, most middle school boys whose life has been kind of rough have. He had a little bit of a temper. Uh, and the second thing to know is that he was, uh, he's diabetic. Okay, so we're driving down, and uh, we get down to the, to the church, and there is food there, and he kind of pitches a fit. He doesn't want to eat it. I don't know if he really didn't want to eat it, or he just wanted to be mad about us not stopping McDonald's, but whatever. He's kind of, he's upset about not eating it. I think we finally convinced him to take a plate of food and at least make us feel better by looking like he was eating or something, and, and so we're all sitting down to eat, and I don't remember whether it was Wendy or I, probably Wendy, she's far more observant, who noticed that he... Uh, was getting a drink out of one of those little orange coolers kind of over on a table off to the side, which if there was water in that cooler would be fine, but there was sugared lemonade in that cooler. And for a diabetic kid, that's not a good plan. What we didn't know until the next morning is that he actually had five cups of sugared lemonade because somehow in his logic... He was mad at us, and he was going to get back at us by drinking the sugared lemonade. I still have not figured out how that was supposed to work out. I do know how it did work out, which is that somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, he woke up, and he had to throw up. And so he rolls out of his sleeping bag, and where we were staying, all the guys are upstairs in this church in a, in a big open room, out into the hallway, down a little bit, there's a bathroom, one of those little one-person bathroom things. Uh, no, no big deal. Like, you can go in there. should be fine. But he doesn't quite make it. Like, he makes it in the bathroom, but not quite to a toilet or sink, okay? So, so throws up kind of on the floor. And um, comes back to bed, decides not to wake me up because... At this point, he's feeling really guilty. He knows he did this to himself, and he doesn't want me to get less sleep because of his mistake. Okay. So an hour later, he wakes up again and has to throw up. But now he can't make it to the toilet because... There, so he just throws up on the floor in the bathroom. And again an hour later, and again an hour later... And so I'm woken up then, not by him, but by some other middle school boy coming in and going, hey, Josh, somebody threw up all over the bathroom floor and we can't get into the sink to brush our teeth. Good morning to you too. Okay. <laughs> so when, when uh, I felt like God called me into youth ministry and I argued with him because I thought this was a terrible idea on his part. Um, if I had known that vomit bathroom was on the list of things I was walking into, I might have argued harder. But, uh, but I got, got a mop. We got that all cleaned up. Just so you know, the, the young man ended up uh, just fine. Uh, his dad came and got him, took him to the hospital. They checked him out, sent him home. He was fine. Um, and to my knowledge, is still fine. 
Uh, but it was, it was a rough night and not ever the phone call you want to make as a youth pastor. Hey, so it turns out I let your kid drink so much sugar lemonade, they vomit bathroom. So anyway, we, we got that all cleaned up. Why am I telling you stories other than to make it so you're not hungry for lunch anymore? Um, these two stories uh, are are just to get us to the first point on your notes, which may be the most obvious point, well, it certainly will be the most obvious point I will say all day, which is to clean a mess, you have to touch the mess. Now, in both of these cases, just to be clear, I touch them with a tool of some sort, a washcloth, a mop, whatever. I did not clean up vomit bathroom with my hands. But to clean a mess, you do have to touch the mess in some way. Parents, you may have observed that you can tell your kids to clean up said mess, their ability to make a mess and then never touch it again is remarkable. (laughs) To clean a mess, you do have to touch the mess. Okay, fair enough. Good, easy baseline for us to get started with. All right, last week, we talked about uh, the boundaries that God gave us for our greatest good, that, that God has, has set up a, um, context for blessing in our lives to say, here's the, the boundaries which in where the greatest good happens for you. N- not because God says, well, you only get good things in here and you don't out there, but because God is God and knows what is best for us. And he says, in this context, this is what is for your greatest good. And we talked about how we have a tendency to step outside those boundaries. And stepping outside those boundaries is what we in church speak call sin, where God has said, this is for your greatest good and the greatest good of those around you, of your ability to love other people. And when we go outside of those, we create hurt for ourselves or for others. We call that sin. We end up making a mess of our lives. And we have all done this. We step outside of our greatest good. We end up hurting ourselves or others or most of the time both. And, and we now have a mess. And even if our greatest mess is hidden, people think we've got it pretty much together. We're still sitting in a mess. We've still, we've still made a mess. And the hidden ones sometimes are are worse because we can start to believe the lie that, well, what nobody knows won't hurt them. Meanwhile, this, this mess, it's, it's just like sitting in our own vomit. We're just stuck with it. And, and we try to clean it up. And, and like my eight-year-old, we, we can do a really good job of cleaning everything we can see. Most of the time, we're just trying to clean up everything everybody else can see. And we can kind of clean up the surface and make that look shiny but the mess, the sin is, is still in every crevice and corner and under the seams and, and we sort of need to be flipped inside out and, and the mess needs to be completely dealt with. And God wanted more for humanity, wanted more for you and me than to just clean up a little and have a shinier exterior. God wants peace for us wants shalom. The the Old Testament word for peace is shalom, which means wholeness, wants us to be complete, not just shiny on the outside and kind of being eaten away by rot on the inside, but but actually wants wholeness and peace for us. 
The problem is God is the only one who can forgive sin. See, God knows when we step outside the boundaries and, and we uh, make a mess, just like you know if your kids or grandkids wander outside the house or your puppy goes outside the house and they find a good mud pit to hang out in, when they come back in, whatever they did outside is now coming inside with them. And God says, no, 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 that's going to have to stay out there. That can't come in here. That hurt, that infection, that, that disease of sin can't, can't be tracked in here. So we're going to have to deal with it. And the only one who can deal with it is God. But as we read throughout the Old Testament, God is over and over again declared as holy. Sin cannot touch him and he cannot touch it. In fact, people who come into his presence with sin wrapped around them, stuck in their mess, people end up dying in the presence of God because it can't, it's not compatible with him. So God wants more for us but can't touch the stuff. God wants to be in relationship with us, but can't touch this mess that we've created. So God's boundaries, God's law, the same thing that's set up, here's the context for your greatest good, also provided a way back in. And that way was through sacrifice. If you're a farmer, you sacrifice crops. If, if, you're, uh, if you're raising cattle, you, you sacrifice that that the way toward forgiveness was through the sacrifice of something on the one hand, kind of like how we teach our kids, no, if you go outside the boundaries I give you, there are consequences for that because you need to understand that you're potentially hurting yourself and others. We need to understand the consequence. And the consequence for God's people for the forgiveness of their sins was something needed to die. Something needed to be put to death because the consequences were that significant. And when we say, well, I don't, man, that seems like way, way over the top. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's because we're looking at sin and going, well, but it's not that big a deal. It doesn't match killing something for it. It, it just, it's not that big a deal. And what God is trying to teach his children is to say, no, actually, it's that big a deal. This is a problem. And I so badly want to be in relationship with you, God says, that, that we're going to do something, even something extreme, so that you can be in my presence again, so that you can be within this context for your greatest good, your blessing again. So this system of sacrifices continues to happen. And it becomes very, very ritualistic. At some point, like a kid who gets spanked every time they do something a little wrong, it starts to just become part of the process and it doesn't mean anything anymore. At some point, it no longer meant, well, this thing is really, really bad. It meant, well, this is just what I have to do so that the people around me feel like I've done the right things. It essentially became another form of just cleaning up the outside of the mess. Just do the right things. People will know that, that I've done the right stuff. That kind of cleans up the outside. Everybody else thinks I'm good. 
Again, God wants more for us than just cleaning up the outside and making it look shiny. God doesn't actually want just a cleaned up life. God wants to give us new life to get into all the crevices and corners and say, let's really deal with this stuff. And so God in his attempt to, or God in his, his desire, his love, his, his want to give us wholeness and peace initiates a rescue plan, initiates the, the greatest cleanup in human history. And that rescue plan was so radical and so dramatically changes lives and changes the world that it changed the way we define God. And I do want to be clear, this didn't change who God is. This changes the way we defined God, that God revealed himself in new ways. And we go, oh, God, I, we understand even more of who you are now. We understand even more of your love. So let's talk about this rescue plan. Let's talk about defining God. Let's start there before we go too much further. Let's define God. First of all, I want to be really clear that there is one God. There is one God. Now, that may not seem super significant to us, but when we're in conversation with other religions, other religions like Islam have a tendency to look at the things I'm about to tell you and go, you don't really believe in one God. No, no, we, we really do. And this would have been really significant for the Israelite people who are writing down and collecting and inspired by God to share the stories of who their God is, that there is one God that would have set them apart, set their God apart from the other nations around them that had a, a God for every tree and for the river and for the sky and for the seasons and for recreation and for food and on and on. So no, we have, we have one God who's so big and so powerful. He's over all of that. Let me tell you what he did to create all of that. Let me tell you about his love and his relationship with humanity. There's one God. And, and there's this, uh, this verse, this prayer that's out of the book of Deuteronomy that Judeo-Christians have been saying for a long, long time. And it starts like this. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on to say, so love the Lord with everything you are. But they started with, hey, listen up. The Lord is one. Whatever the other nations may be trying to tell you or pull you into, whatever desire you may have to go to a God of this river or this season or or this activity so that you can get what you want. No, no, the, the Lord is, is one. There is one God. But part of the Christian faith is that we know God in three persons. We know God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God that we know in three persons. Each person has their own attributes, their own characteristics, their own roles as laid out in scripture, and yet they are all one God. And yes, this is the most confusing theological concept to try to wrap our brains around. 
What do we mean there's, there's one God and we know him in three persons? And so we try different ways to demonstrate this to kids or, or to ourselves. <laughs> uh, we, we try uh, an egg, right? Because egg has a shell and the white and the yolk is kind of three, but it's also one thing. Uh, and we try with an, an apple, right? Because it's got the seeds and the, the meat and the skin. Um, in a youth ministry conversation one time, I, I tried a shoe, like a lacing shoe, and talked about God being the, the rock that we stand on, the foundation, and Jesus covers us, and Holy Spirit holds us together. We tried these kinds of things because they sort of get at it, this idea that three in one, but they also fall short because we're trying to use created things to talk about God and who God is. So I think a lot of us go, okay, this is just one of those things where I guess because I follow Jesus, I'm just going to have to accept that that's true. Um, and there's some truth to that, but we're going to talk about why. We, we can't just write this off. We can't just go, well, I guess I believe this because I'm following Jesus. Or, you know, I don't really understand, so I'm just going to keep following Jesus and whatever, Trinity or not, or I don't care. The problem with that is that this is how we define God. This is how we define the God who is loved, who has saved us from our sins, who wants to be in relationship with us. This is how a Christian, a Jesus follower, defines God. And if you go, I just don't believe that Trinity thing is true, then you may be worshiping God, and you may belong to a religion, but that religion is not Christianity. This is how Jesus teaches us to define God. And the word we use is Trinity. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to start reading through the New Testament together as a church uh, through the summer. We're going to read the New Testament in 90 days. We'll talk a little bit more uh, about that. There's a way to, to sign up and join in some conversation on version if you want or, or form some other conversation groups. Read through it together. As you read through the New Testament... As you read through any of Scripture, you will not find the word Trinity. It's not in there. It is a word that the theologians and Bible scholars use to, to wrap up and, and categorize this concept of God being three persons, one God. We call it the Trinity. And it is revealed in God's rescue plan to pull us out of our mess. It is revealed from Genesis through Revelation. As part of this rescue plan, God shows up. These three persons of God show up. So let's, uh, let's start at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 is where we first see God show up. And we have to deal with this multiple thing. So where we are in the story is God is creating the world. This is the very beginning. We get to the point where God is creating human beings. And in verse 26 of Genesis 1, he says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and so on and so forth. Let us make human beings in our image image, us, God in relationship. At the very beginning, God, the one God, is in relationship. 
And by the time we get to the other end of Scripture, and a Jesus follower named John is defining God and says, God is love, we can go, okay, of course, if that's, that's true, that God is love, then of course God is in relationship. Because here's the thing about love. Love is only as real as it is shared. Love is only as real as it is shared. This is true for God. This is true for you and me. I may feel love towards somebody. I may have an emotion. I may, I may say that I, you know, I may tell you that I love somebody else. But love is only as real as it is shared. To feel it, to think it, that may be an emotion. But love itself, love is, is shared and it's shared equally. This isn't coerced coerced affection or, or love to somebody that you dominate over because they can do things for you. No, love is, is shared on an equal playing field. Love is, is only as real as it is shared with, with peers. God is love. God is in relationship Sharing this love equally, this Godhead, this triune God, God the Trinity, fully sharing love, each person of the Trinity with each other, God in, in relationship. And God's love is only as real as it is shared, and so he also makes human beings, he makes man and woman to love and to be in relationship with, and they make a mess of their lives and introduce this disease of sorts called sin by listening to a lying, walking serpent. And so as they have introduced sin into the world, as they believe the lies of the serpent, God says this to the serpent in Genesis chapter three. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his feet. Here we have the first foreshadowing of Jesus that this serpent who represents Satan, the accuser, the evil one, the liar, the tempter, God says the offspring of this woman, a, a man, will crush your head and you will bite his heel. Foreshadowing of Jesus' death on a cross that actually leads to the defeat of Satan, to the defeat of evil, the defeat of sin. Jesus, who was there with God in the very beginning, we read in, in the Gospel of John, very first chapter, talks about how Jesus was there in the very beginning. That when, when God is saying, Let us make man in our image, Jesus, as part of God, as who God is, is there is there in the garden as Adam and Eve, as man and woman are listening to the serpent, falling for the lies, 
and introducing sin. And here we have moments after. Moments after sin was introduced into the world, God has a rescue plan already in place. God's saying, here's the plan. That someone who is an offspring of humanity, but who has everything of God in him, is going to crush the head of the serpent, is going to defeat death and sin, is going to clean up this mess. So here's the rescue plan laid out after the fact by a, uh, a Jesus follower named Paul. He's, he's writing a letter to his protege, Titus, and, and he's saying, here's, here's the rescue plan. This is what happened, and you got to share this with everybody you can share it with because this is such good news. So Titus chapter 3, Paul writes, When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, so not because of our ability to clean up our own mess, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Do you hear the Trinity in there? That he saved us or gave us new life through the Holy Spirit. God the Father generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ. This is the plan to rescue us from the vomit of our sin, from the mess that we've made by hurting ourselves and others, from from the poison that has infected every corner of creation. And if this is the rescue plan, then suddenly we see why the Son is necessary. Why is it necessary that the Savior is is not just God, but is God in humanity, that is God giving everything of himself in a human being? Here's how an evangelist and, and pastor named Bob Roberts put it in an interview. He said, God is holy and cannot touch sin as God the Father which makes God the Son necessary because God the Son is still the Father while he's in human form, identifying with man because he loves them, but dealing with the impurity. Then he asks us to live this radical, holy Christian life, which is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So to live like the Son, to be in the family, takes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all one, but as they function in our lives in different manners. God the Father becomes the Son to be able to touch the mess. That to clean the mess, you're going to have to touch it. And, and so he comes in, in Jesus, the, the person of God, Jesus, comes to touch our hurt to teach us in a way that we would only listen to from another human being to lead the cleanup effort, to be the sacrifice that dies once and for all time 
to bring us that peace, that wholeness, that shalom. But God is eternal, and God is outside of space and time, and God is everywhere, and God will not stay contained within a human being. Jesus says, look, it's great for you all that I can physically be around while I'm here, but I got to go because I'm going to send, my father is going to send who Jesus describes as the advocate, the counselor, the guide, the spirit of God to be with all of us wherever we go. God released, not trapped in human form, not trapped in a temple, but with us. God the Father, our creator, initiates a rescue plan where God the Son comes and touches our mess and our sin and our hurt and tells us and shows us, demonstrates for us that we are loved. And then upon his, after his death and upon his resurrection, after he ascends into heaven, we are sent the Spirit of God, the comforter, the guide, the one who goes with us. Now, Bob Roberts, who uh, I, I ripped this quote from, Bob spends a lot of time with uh, Muslims and Jews and people of other faiths. And he says, look, I, I'm theologically trained. I, I used to be okay with the Trinity. Like, I kind of got it. It was fine. He said, the more I spend time with people who believe differently than I do, the more passionate I am about the Trinity because the Trinity demonstrates God's rescue plan through Jesus. God, the Trinity demonstrates why this is such good news. See, while our Muslim or Mormon or Jewish friends are doing everything that they can to try to follow all the rules to keep God happy or make God happy, we have evidence of God's love and compassion and forgiveness in the story of Jesus. Because we know that even when we try to do our very best to follow all the rules, to get everything cleaned up, all that results in is cleaning up the mess that we can see. And most of the time we stop short of that and we just try to clean up the mess everybody else can see. God doesn't just want a cleaned up life. He wants to give us new life, new life through Jesus. New life guided and affirmed by God's Holy Spirit. To get down in the crevices and corners where the infection of sin festers in us, where the guilt and shame take root, where pride numbs our senses, where the shadow of death kind of overcomes and overwhelms and frightens us. He wants to deal with all of that. With all of it. He touches the mess with compassion and heartbreak and rescues every broken heart, including yours. So here's the results of this Trinitarian rescue plan written by Paul in Romans 8. The whole chapter is good. I'm just going to pull out a couple of verses. So now... Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. We are, we are rescued by the Savior. We are empowered and embraced by the Spirit, and we're adopted and loved by the Father. God's spirit joins with our spirit. That's crazy. I mean, this is one of those Bible verses we can just read and go, okay, that's kind of nice. No, and that's... That's nuts. God has chosen to join his spirit with us. We are invited to be as loved by God, as present with God's spirit as Jesus is. And all we have to do is say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And I'm gonna give him my life. God wraps us in. So what does all of this mean for us? I mean, it's, it's nice truth to know, but, but what, if any, practical impact does any of this have on our day-to-day lives? I think this has a lot of impact or should on our day-to-day attitudes on how we approach the world and approach God. Now, there are probably lots of ways. Here's four that we came up with as a staff. Feel free to add your own. One, this should give us a sense of awe, of awe and wonder and worship. This God is so complex and so big, and that's okay. It's even good to know it is not simple or easy to define God. He's God. He shouldn't be easy or simple. But the beauty of the Trinity is that it demonstrates God's desire, God's commitment to being known by us. He is so big and he's inviting us to get to know him personally. Not just know about him, not just know cool theological concepts and fun words like Trinity, but to know him. So that's one. Another way this should change us is our sense of security. Jesse read earlier from John 15 about vine and branches. Paul writes here in Romans, God has bound us, right? God has bound each of us to himself. He lives in you. He's not giving up on you any more than he's giving up on himself. He is with us and he is for us in all of his power and protection. And we have that sense of security. This should also help us to realize that we are known and loved. We should know that we are known and loved. God knew the consequences of sin. He knows us. He knows the mess. He knows the hurt. So he sent us both a savior and a helper. God has sent us both a savior and a helper. You are so loved by God that he gave everything of himself 
for you. And then he bound you to everything of himself. It's an incredible amount of intimate love. And I hope that this truth of the Trinity helps us realize that we have a rescue story to share. This is good news of God's love. His compassion for us, his intentional plan from the very beginning to rescue us. God became man to touch our hurt and our mess with that love and compassion. And then he gives us his spirit and tells us to go share this story of love and rescue with the world around us. So hear this command of Jesus. It's the last thing after his death and resurrection. It's the last thing he told his followers before he ascended into heaven. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is God. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Hear, hear the Trinity in this command. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. Church, be sure of this. Jesus says, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are with us, that you are here, that you are with us as we go from here, that for all who have said that we believe that Jesus is Lord, has been raised from the dead, you have wrapped us in to everything of yourself, that is mind-blowing and overwhelming. It is confusing and hard to fathom. And yet you promise to be with us. That you have loved us. You've saved us. You've rescued us. You give us new life. And you give us your guidance, your strength, your empowerment, your protection as we walk into that new life. And you promise to be with us. Thank you for the gift of Holy Spirit who guides, who convicts, who comforts. Thank you for being with us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.